Hi, this is Michael Turpin, and uh, we're here in uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. When you want to catch up on the latest and greatest of NFTs, listen to The Edge of NFT. Welcome to The Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger, the podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Today's episode features guest Michael Turpin, founder and CEO of Transform Group, leading advisory and PR firm for the blockchain industry. Transform Group has worked with more than 300 clients in the sector since 2013, including the likes of Abra, Ethereum, Kraken, and Tether. Michael also owns the blockchain accelerator Transform Studios and is a managing director in Transform Ventures, which invests and advises companies in the DeFi and NFT sector, including Bridge Mutual, Launch Pool, Rare Wax, and Yield App. Michael is also co-founder and chairman of Aspire, a leading digital asset creation platform, which has grown in under six months to a $50 million market cap across its platform tokens, ASP and GASP, ASP and GASP. Aspire allows for quick, inexpensive creation of full token ecosystems, including unlimited NFTs with unparalleled speed and security, as well as negligible gas fees. Michael's list of other accomplishments is too long to list here, but includes founding and exiting several successful companies and supporting the blockchain and crypto ecosystem in every way you can imagine. Michael, it's so great to be here with you today and and to be able to do this podcast in person in Puerto Rico. It's been a couple of years since I was here. In fact, the first time we met was at one of your conferences in Puerto Rico back in 2018, I believe. And Wow, times have changed in terms of blockchain landscape, the Puerto Rico landscape, and in NFTs. Like they're the talk of the town now. And as usual, you're uh, early to the game and doing a lot in that space. So it's we're just really excited to get your perspective. Thanks for coming down to the island again. And uh, yes, there's been a lot uh, happening since uh, 2018. 2018, everything was about ICOs. You don't even really hear anybody use that term anymore. And uh, we did, however, sell out every hotel room and Airbnb on the island when everybody came down to find out what was new in ICOs and uh, some of the other things that were hot at the time. Uh, Ethereum had just crossed $1,000 from being you know, under $10 about a year earlier. And of course, this year it got over $4,000 after people were pronouncing it dead at $80 a year ago. So, uh, you know, history may not, as Mark Twain said, uh, repeat, but it tends to rhyme. Absolutely. And now we're talking about Ethereum potentially flipping Bitcoin at some point in the future. And, you know, hotels, Airbnbs are still hard to come by. Uh, Ethan and I had to scramble to find somewhere to stay. And if people are wondering what's going on in Puerto Rico, is it still alive and well? I have to tell you, the restaurants are packed, uh, the bars are packed, the hotels are packed, and the pina coladas are very tasty. Wouldn't you agree, Ethan? I would agree. Yes. Thanks for sharing your pina colada with me. And Encourage me to drink more than I normally would. <laughs> so, Michael, next question I have for you is just a bit about Aspire and how that as a, a decentralized asset creation platform plays into your vision for the future of NFTs. Sure. So, um, 
Yeah, Aspire is a company that I co-founded with uh, Jim Blasco, who is really the uh, technical whiz behind the vision here. And people forget that NFTs uh, predate Ethereum. And the original NFT technically was colored coins in, back in early 2013, when you basically took a Bitcoin and then you put a, something in the memo to differentiate it from other Bitcoin. And so therefore, you could have a single Bitcoin, which back then you could get for 20 bucks or so. And um, you could have 100 million NFTs because every single thing inside of a Bitcoin, you could go in and put a different memo field and say, playing card, one of 10,000, or that you could do it with coloring maybe a hundredth of a Bitcoin or a thousandth of a Bitcoin. That was really the beginning of the whole non-fungible token concept. I worked with a counterparty back in 2014, which is one of the earliest tokens. The first uh, ICO was something called MasterCoin, which is built on top of Bitcoin. Counterparty was also built on top of Bitcoin. And with Counterparty, they actually created the first sort of playing cards where you'd be able to go, and instead of putting a memo inside of Bitcoin, you created a token that was lodged on top of Bitcoin and used Bitcoin for gas. So that's 2014. At one point, Counterparty had 30 of the top 100 tokens on CoinMarketCap. And you now flash forward, you know, seven years, which in this uh, industry is like a thousand years in some other industries. And um, Counterparty has sort of died more or less because, first of all, the three founders all left the project and went on to do other things. And, but more importantly, the notion that everything should be on top of Bitcoin, use Bitcoin as gas, became kind of difficult when the price of Bitcoin gas went up to about $20 a transaction before SegWit. And uh, if you're going and trying to uh, create an NFT and every time you transfer it, it costs you $20 and it's a $5 NFT, that doesn't work. And we, of course, see that's happening now with Ethereum because people moved from counterparty to Ethereum because the price of gas was so low. Obviously, in the past year, we've had times when minting an NFT could cost you $100. And now people are looking at layer two solutions like Polygon that, that you know, will dramatically lower those fees. So it's this never ending chase for lower fees. What Aspire does is it takes the original code, open source code from counterparty, and reworks it so that instead of having Bitcoin as gas, we have our own token, the gas coin, G-A-S-P, so it's gas protocol. And um, that is designed so that it's built on uh, sort of a, a Litecoin standard, uh, so it can go on an exchange very easily. And uh, you can go and get about a million transactions for a little over a dollar at the current price. And so even if the price went up a thousand X, you'd still have very affordable gas. What do you have cooking in terms of projects on the roadmap with Aspire that you're excited about? Well, one of them, and actually the uh, founder is uh, uh, in Puerto Rico this week as well, is called NFT Studios. And uh, that is actually a uh, group that we uh, did a little bit of seed uh, funding out of, uh, out of Aspire. And uh, they're going to be building um, the first game. It's a game studio, and which, I've, as you can see, some of the hottest tokens right now are are gaming and metaverse studios. Alien worlds, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, number one uh, with a bullet right now in the top 100. So this has, a, the first game is called Chi-Fi Bots, so it's like fighting robots and that look like Pokemons and has a lot of gamification around it. And so it's a very bright team of artists and uh, programmers that are out of Mexico and Vietnam and a few other places. And uh, they've got a big team and they're putting together these really cool games that are going to run on Aspire. And they approached us because they like the fact that you could go in and have these, you know, fractions of a penny for uh, for gas. 
Well, we've got Transformers. We've got Transform Group. Is there a Michael Turpin robot in the mix? Is that part of the deal? I haven't seen it yet, but I, I guess I'll find out. Yeah, Michael, you outlined a tremendous history that you've had within the blockchain space and, and also with the evolution of NFTs. Was there a moment or a series of moments which you identified that uh, NFTs became a, a game-changing part of the, the blockchain landscape in your mind? What are your thoughts on that? I'd say CryptoKitties. I mean, CryptoKitties um, sort of showed that you could have something that would uh, just completely go viral to an extent that, say, rare Pokemon cards, what were they called? Rare Peppy. Rare Peppy cards on Counterparty didn't, didn't quite get to that level. But you can see that games have always been important in the evolution of blockchain. And then when you're able to go and, uh, you know, have this dynamic of that, you know, has been very popular in, in, in non-blockchain games of being able to, like, you know, have something live and care for it, et cetera, and be able to do that on a blockchain where you had ownership as well, that to me showed the potential. And then obviously this last, you know, 24 months when uh, there's just been exponential growth, you know, obviously the Beeple moment is what uh, got all the artists out of the woodwork. I obviously have a concern that uh, there's such an explosion of uh, supply that even, even a fast linear growth in demand means there's still going to be a lot more out there than people are going to want to buy. But, you know, this happens in any market. It happened in the dot-coms. It happened in the uh, ICOs. And yet blockchain and internet keep on growing. Yeah, there's always like a build, pop, you know, retest moment. And people ask us a lot, like, is the NFT crazy? And I kind of feel like it is a retest moment where we've set the foundation and, and people don't realize how much money has gotten into the ecosystem that hasn't been spent or deployed yet and how many cool things are coming up. What are your thoughts on that? Well, in terms of just raw dollars, a year and a half ago, there were months that you didn't even have six figures of NFTs. And a year before that, I don't think you had like, you know, you could, you could count it like, you know, in the hundreds of dollars. Now we're talking about $2 billion having been spent on NFTs, which is just an extraordinary growth in terms of dollars that uh, is far faster than the fungible token marketplace grew and far faster than the internet grew. So, you know, obviously there's something there. There's early adopter demand and we'll just see whether it, you know, as they say, crosses the chasm to the early mainstream and everybody wants to have an NFT instead of just a collectible. But most people collect something. And so if you can have permanence and digital, I mean, that's really the magic equation that excites the creators as well as the collectors. Yeah, one of the coolest uh, applications that we've seen of NFTs is sort of the coming and already here, the metaverse. And, you know, how people are going to apply NFTs in the future and what people are cooking today. And, um, you know, you're working with NFT studios and Upland as well. And I, I'm just curious how you see, you know, those two projects or other projects claiming and, and playing a role in the future of NFTs within the metaverse. Well, I think uh, blockchain is perhaps the secret ingredient to finally get, uh, you know, these virtual worlds off the ground. I mean, I've been working with companies in virtual worlds going back 30 years almost. You know, I worked in the early 90s with my, uh, my first PR from the Turpin Group with uh, one of the first virtual reality uh, headsets, which was literally the size and weight of a football helmet, cost about $2,000 and gave you headaches. And uh, that was still considered revolutionary as time. You know, now, obviously, you know, you, you then went through waves of uh, Oculus Rift, of uh, Samsung, of, uh, you know, some of the other VR platforms, but you still didn't really have what at the end of the day did you have, right? And so the fact that you can go and own something inside of the game and trade it, 
I mean, that's really what exploded World of Warcraft and, and some of the other original virtual currencies before cryptocurrency. And uh, it's got the potential to really help gaming plus collecting plus virtual worlds all work together in a seamless manner. Yeah, I mean, we're talking to folks that are doing holograms and all sorts of stuff to support this ecosystem. There's just a lot of energy and a lot of folks in the group we're traveling with to um, here are into sort of realistic three-dimensional worlds and, and what you can do. It's really exciting when you combine that technology with NFTs. Yeah, I think we're also just curious about the uh, other cool projects uh, that you're seeing that are leveraging NFTs, you know, maybe something we haven't heard about, but, but should be paying attention to. Any, any insights there? Sure. So not everything is art and uh, digital. Sometimes NFTs are used to prove the provenance and make for easy trading of physical items. A good example is a company that I'm an advisor and an investor in called um, Icecap. Icecap is a good example of having a physical good, a marketplace and uh, NFTs work together. And it's a good example also of a giant industry, in this case, diamonds, which is $90 billion a year and about $25 billion a year of uh, finished diamonds, being able to go and use NFTs to make a global marketplace. There's a lot of wealthy families that say, I want to put a certain percentage of my money into gold, into silver, into crypto, into real estate, into stocks and bonds. If you say, I want to put 1% of millions of dollars for a family office or a wealthy family or a corporation into diamonds, how do you do it? You can't just go and say, I'd like to place an order for a million dollars of diamonds. What diamonds? Whereas you can do, do that for gold because it's fungible. And so what IceCap does is takes the non-fungibility of diamonds and basically turns each diamond that's an, invest an investment-grade diamond, which is calculated by nine different factors. There's the traditional four Cs of the cut, the clarity, color, and puts the top of the line there. And then they've got another five that basically means the difference between um, can you sell it to the industry versus you have to sell it to a pawn shop at half what you paid for it. And uh, because of this, it's sort of a professional grade marketplace where you can go in and buy something at maybe 5% over what the industry is paying. And the thing that's really cool that they just brought out, uh, again, at icecap.diamonds is they have 500 different factors. And so you'll say, what is actually selling right now to investors? And you'll say, oh, the thing is selling the most, so therefore, therefore liquidity, is VS1, D cut one carat. And then you look and see what's listed. And then what does it compare to other things in its category? And it's sort of the value basis. And ever since that listed, everything is at the top of the value starts selling. And they, the, you know, IceCap just signed a deal with, with a group that's uh, going to be marketing this to like thousands of family offices already buy gold and silver. And uh, now all of a sudden you have a formula. That's great. And what's going on with Rare? Another one of those uh, interesting NFT projects that's in your portfolio. Yeah, so Rare, um, so it's infrastructure. They've really created the model. I mean, everyone in Hollywood knows what uh, uh, digital asset uh, management is. And this, this is, a, or DAM, and that usually involved big legacy computer systems and enterprise software, et cetera. And what this is really is, is DDAM. It's decentralized or distributed digital asset management around NFTs. So what they're able to do is a couple of problems exist in NFTs. One of them is when you have an NFT, how do you know that the link that you're getting is something that's going to be there tomorrow? Because there's a number of NFTs where the source file is stored on an AWS server. Well, if somebody doesn't pay the bill, you just spend $50,000 to a bridge to nowhere or a hyperlink to nowhere. And um, here, everything, they're able to have a, a suite where 
you go and you're able to very inexpensively mint by paying for it with rare tokens, which is the decentralized uh, server on the nodes that creates this. And then also permissions this so you can say, if it's one of one, you're the only one in the world that can see it. Because even when you have things that are stored on IPFS, they're not encrypted. So one person ends up getting that link because they bought one of them. They can share it on a, a forum and all of a sudden a million people have it and it's no longer rare. Here you actually need a permission key. And so it enforces rarity. It enforces the fact that, this, that it's going to stay there. It enforces uh, the digital asset management. It's a really you know revolutionary set of uh, tools. And um, so I'm an investor in the... Uh, in the equity, and then there's going to be a, a token coming out in the near future. That's exciting, and that's a project I've been following as well. And all the use cases around that get get pretty interesting. I'm just imagining like these special moments, these rare moments and experiences that that occur that you really want to keep to a, a more select audience from the sort of virtual moments, like maybe the birth of Baby Yoda or a real birth moment or some other sort of NFT that you want to pass on to other generations, right? Well, and I think, you know, it's been noted on, you know, the most successful NFT product out there is uh, NBA Top Shots. And in some cases, it looks like some of these things that you're spending thousands of dollars for, the source of video is available on the internet. You can find it on the web. Well, how rare is that? So this will allow so that there's, if there's, say, some really never before seen footage of uh you know a, a michael jordan dunk or or whatever you literally can prove that you only have one of one and the problem like having an ipfs without the without the encryption is you think you have one of one and then somebody shares it on a server and uh, all of a sudden it's one of a million it's debased and here that can't happen well we're going to be excited to uh, chat with them at some point in the future they've been busy building but they're looking forward to coming on the show so that'll be great yeah michael what else are we and the general public missing about NFTs? Are there game-changing categories of NFTs that we should be paying attention to but are not? Well, I think the evolution is going to show things that you know haven't even been thought about yet. So just like you know when, when the uh, telephone came out, its original use case was supposed to be broadcasting opera. Obviously, that's not what people use a uh, telephone for now. So I think you're going to find use cases that are built on top of use cases that are built on top of use cases. With Rare, for example, they permission the ability of somebody to go and, and, and publish a book. And instead of giving 70% to Amazon, they'll end up keeping 90%. And then, then, nine, then the other 10% goes to a combination of the token holder, the distributor, Rare, you know, the platform. But you can go in and say, sell a $20 ebook that's you know, maybe a coffee table book, and then you open it up and there's a photograph there. Well, within that page, you can then go and buy the NFT. And then maybe that's a different thing, or there's an artwork that will go for 10 times as much, or you can have different airdrops. So I think that the sort of layering of NFTs with inside of NFTs as an ecosystem is something that's, uh, you know, really in its infancy. Yeah, we're, we're in the early days. I mean, a lot has happened just in the last few months, and the evolution and innovation is happening at a rapid pace. I mean, if we talk to you again in six months, who knows what's, what's popping in this crazy world of NFTs? But we'd love to get to know you more as a person. I'm sure our audience would as well. You do a lot of interviews about the industry, but we want to know about Michael Turpin, the man behind Transform Group, the man behind the myth. So, uh, Jeff, we're going to turn it over to Jeff, and he's going to run us through some uh, edge quick hitters if you're up for it. Michael, edge quick hitters are a fun, quick way to get to know you a little better. 
There are 10 questions and we're looking for a short, single or few word response, but feel free to expand if you get the urge. Ready? Sure. Great. All right. So Michael, what was the first thing you ever purchased? So I have to differentiate this from what I purchased versus what family purchased for me. And I'm thinking it probably would have been numismatics, rare coins, because I collected coins uh, when I was a kid. And so I had to take my allowance money and go to the uh, coin store in downtown Buffalo, New York and, uh, and you know, buy Buffalo nickel or whatever, whatever the first one was. I can't recall at the, at the time. Uh, so many of our guests were collectors, even as kids. It's the theme. It's incredible. Yeah. So, Michael, what was the first thing you ever sold? That also would have been coins. I collected coins from the age of maybe six or seven, started buying them and would watch them go up in value. And uh, when I got closer to uh, realizing I need to save up money for college, actually considerably before that, I actually started a uh, little mail order company to sell uh, coins when I was about 11 years old. And uh, it was funny because uh, when we were cleaning out um, my dad's house, some things uh, a couple of years ago, my wife came across this little thing that had a business card that I had when I was about 12 or 13. It said, Turpin's Coins. And uh, obviously, considering I got into crypto, it uh, has double meaning. We definitely need to NFT a photo of that. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. So, Michael, what is the most recent thing you purchased? Oh, the most recent thing I purchased? Well, I just got back from uh, Monaco. And uh, let's see. And then my wife got me that. Let's see. What did I purchase? <laughs> um, some wine. Red or white? Both. Uh, let's see. I think probably the last thing that I purchased, let's just say it's a magnum of uh, Nuit St. George. And what is the most recent thing you sold? Now we're going to know the real Michael. What does he actually trade in crypto? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess uh, probably uh, Bitcoin. Now, again, I sold some Bitcoin and then bought some back lower. So, All right, Michael. Uh, next question is, what is your most prized possession? Okay, so obviously you can't say my lovely wife, anything like that, because that's not a possession. That's a relationship. I would say probably, can I just say our real estate portfolio? I mean, we've got a couple of homes that my wife has uh, insisted on buying every time the price of crypto goes up, and I don't want to pick one of them. We, we, we just bought a really nice... Uh, condo in Miami. So that's sort of top of mind. Actually, uh, was originally uh, owned by Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith. Very cool. Good place to go if, uh, if another uh, level five hurricane comes through San Juan. So I find this to be a very interesting question to ask you, Michael, but if you could buy anything in the world, digital, physical service or experience that is currently for sale, what would it be? Currently for sale is the uh, optimal piece, right? Well, my wife wouldn't mind having a nice uh, private job. Right now, we're, we're content to simply, uh, you know, sort of have friends who have private jets and or uh, just uh, occasionally uh, go in and have a budget for when it makes sense. While not an NFT yet, I will have to mention that I'm an advisor to a company that was originally called Air Ethereum. thought it was a very cool name. And it's uh, um, now called FlyApp, and it uh, has a blockchain-based uh, uh, private jet travel. Excellent. So um, next question is, if you could pass on one of your personality traits to the next generation, what would that be? 
hopefully creativity. I think creativity is what uh, gets us past the problems of today. If you look at all of the inventions that changed the world, it's one millionth of a percent of the population that came up with, you know, the things that really impact uh, life today. For every Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Da Vinci or Alexander Fleming or, you know, all the great inventors and discoverers, um, it's a very small number of people. And it's just a little micro movement to the left or right. Sometimes it makes all the difference. This is true. And, uh, you, you know, you look at someone, inspirational character like uh, Edison, who had to, how many times did they fail before they were able to actually make the light bulb? More than I would have. So the follow-up to that is if you could eliminate one personality trait from the next generation, what would you choose? Probably impatience. You know, sometimes you just have to be in, particularly in crypto trading, but for many other aspects of life, you have to, uh, you know, just uh, realize that things, life is a process. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, if you're a type A personality, you can get impatient. And sometimes, you know, that's not a good thing. Well, I have to say it took us an hour longer than we wanted to set up here. And you were the most patient scholar and gentleman in the room. So I think you've already in the process of eliminating that characteristic. What did you do just before joining us on the podcast and waiting for the podcast to to start? I was on my computer uh, answering emails. And what are you going to do next after the podcast is over? I'm going to do push-ups because I just got off the road where I ate way too much good food in France and I need to get back to my uh, routine. My trainer's coming by tomorrow and she's going to kick my butt. Well, this is my first time seeing my co-host Ethan in person. We've been doing this podcast virtually and he's much skinnier than me. So I'm going to join you for some of those push-ups because I've eaten a lot of mafunga this week. I'd have to say I have a daily push-up routine that I skipped today, so I might have to join you too. All right. We're going to do a little video, guys, of all of us doing push-ups after this podcast is over. Well, our last segment for today is Hot Topics. We like to get um, share our perspective on what's going on in the news which travels quite quickly these days, and also get your perspective. Our first hot topic is Space Jam. A new legacy launch includes 91,000 item NFT tie-in. Jeff, what's all this about? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is what uh, I, I think NFTs and entertainment is, is all about here in the next phase. Really, it, instead of creating a, a ton of physical merch, we're talking about NFTs collectible at the scale of 91,000. I mean, this is a significant number for a movie and, and for a project. So really, it's, um, I think it's the, just the beginning of how we're going to see NFTs start showing up in media uh, in a really big way. Yeah, so this one is around the Space Jam franchise, which is interesting. So you're getting a lot of Bugs Bunny trading cards, quite a lot of them. I'm curious, Michael, any thoughts on, are you going to be any Bugs Bunny NFTs? I've been a big Bugs Bunny fan. I would say that this is just an ex another example of what happens when you uh, have mass adoption at scale of a new technology. One of the easiest ways of, of doing this is to take an older technology that already has mass adoption, like television, like movies, and adopt it. Uh, if you look at what helped accelerate the adoption of the internet from being used by practically no one in 94, 95 to being used by everyone by the year 2000, it was when ABC, NBC, CBS started saying ABC.com, NBC.com. And back in 93, 94, one of those three-letter behemoths told me they would never be on the internet because the, her, their mom was never going to go put up with, uh, you know, having a second phone line and having something go bing, 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 bing in the middle of the night. And they didn't think about broadband. And so obviously, 
Same thing with uh, NFTs. It'll be a lot easier in the future than it is today to sort of buy and hold an NFT. Exciting to see what, what's happening here. Ethan, what, do, what else do we have going on? Uh, next thing in the news is an NFT startup venture, Notables, um, drawing CAA, UTA, and WME as advisors. Of course, those are really, really major talent uh, agencies. And yeah, so we kind of want to watch what's going on there. We want to ask ourselves, like, is this the key to NFTs? We've seen a lot of ones that are attached to big name stars, and that's kind of behind the driving the value in it. And, and maybe we'll even see some fr- frustrated creators and, and uh, individuals that don't have a big name already who thought they were getting something out of NFTs, the technology, but maybe feeling that they're losing out to the bigger players just once again. Yeah, any thoughts on that, Mike? So I did a, a TED Talk in early 2014 for TEDx Hollywood, where I talked about crypto and uh, actually Bitcoin at the time and, and Hollywood. And I, I, I spoke about the fact that uh, celebrity was going to drive adoption. And back then, there was a big scandal around Coinye West, which was a fake coin that Kanye's managers sent a cease and desist order to like an anonymous Gmail account. They had no idea who had put it up. And I basically said that if Coinye West, a fake coin, can get this much attention, imagine if uh, Coin I Am happened and it was the real thing. And, you know, we're now seeing that. Jeff follows this scene pretty closely. Jeff, any other thoughts here? Yeah. So basically, I think. You know, there's also this question of, you know, what strategic value do your partners bring? You know, is it just a name attached to it just for awareness? Or is there also, you know, an opportunity to add strategic value? Um, Some of these agencies are the biggest in the world. And I I do wonder, are they going to be getting in the mix and and adding value beyond their client list? Or is that it? Is that where it stops? Yeah, I, I guess it's a fundamental question about whether traditional agencies know how to sell NFTs. Um, they know how to sell celebrity products in the physical world, but do you think that they're going to move the needle more than, say, a typical crypto advisor? What do they bring to the table in addition to what more traditional advisors and blockchain bring? So they have the relationships with uh, traditional money um, and traditional resources. And uh, they're usually slow to get started, but any industry where they see the dollars actually starting to flow, they get into. I mean, you look how long it took Hollywood to get into the internet, and then all of a sudden the agencies all had digital divisions. It wasn't until the late 90s. And then you look at social media. It was laughter for a while, and then all of a sudden, you know, the audience, which was a lot of traditional Hollywood agency players, became one of the biggest social media agencies because they sort of said, oh, we need to go and be the ones that are controlling the social media accounts for Britney Spears and for all these other uh, entertainers. And I think you're now seeing that with NFTs. Right on. And what's our last news for the day, Ethan? Yeah. So last headline is that the winners of the Twitter NFT giveaway have formed a group to retain their value. And I'm curious, Jeff, have any thoughts on this? I actually wasn't aware there was a, a Twitter NFT giveaway. Maybe it's because I've been hanging out here in, uh, in Puerto Rico. I thought the only giveaways on Twitter were the contests that we run. Yeah. What's going on here? Yeah, no, so they, they had this giveaway where there's a number of NFTs um, that they, they offered to folks. And basically the people that, that won them have recognized that there's meaningful value associated with them. And so uh, they've formed this group to come together and preserve or enhance the value, actually, of these NFTs in a number of ways. We don't quite know yet what uh, what steps they'll be taking there, but 
I think you can imagine from everything we see in the meme coin community and other shill related communities that there's probably a number of steps that they can take to get excitement built around these NFTs. Question is, what kind of attention does that draw? Does it draw some negative attention from, say, the SEC, who's still trying to figure out what to do with NFTs? You know, so this is what comes to mind for me. Is this the first NFT union? What's going on here, Michael? So I wouldn't say it has to do so much with SEC because I, I think it's been pretty clear to date that unless you're, you know, giving away something that would identify as a security, like you have an airdrop of stock or of uh, dividends, for the most part, the digital collectibles, if they're collectibles in, in the non-digital world, they're collectibles in the digital world. And uh, even some of the recent opinions that the SEC had, or, or maybe it was uh, FinCEN, were, were saying fungible virtual currencies. They still use virtual. And uh, I think this is more about rights. And technology does not trump the law, as we've seen. And, and one of them is you get an NFT, you think, oh, I now have this one-of-one one NFT. I can do anything I want with it. I can go and print it out and sell copies of it. No, you can't unless you have the legal rights. And so I suppose you get airdrop legal rights. But if you don't, this is where the IP lawyers fight things out. And I think that's you know sort of what's happening here is really kind of a what do you own when you end up getting something that may have some value beyond what you were given. Yeah, I'm also struck by the fact that it was completely a giveaway. Twitter did not assign any value to these initially. I also was curious if that was a little bit of a way of sidestepping any sort of SEC oversight on these things or saying, okay, these are just given away. Um, so we're not necessarily claiming that they have any value. And, and then that way, you know, these people now who are claiming the value, it's sort of their responsibility to carry that on or not. And I'm also curious, we've had some of these discussions in some of our episodes, especially with some artists, of NFTs sort of not being these things that have a monetary value, but signify just a connection for people. You know, they just want to claim ownership of something and it's not something they're looking to trade and think that it's going to go up in value. Have you seen any of that just kind of purely just wanting to own something and not wanting to trade it? Having value does not make it a security. Otherwise, um, you would not be allowed to own antiques. You would not be allowed to own classic cars without registering with the SEC. The Howey test has been something that, you know, is, is from the 1940s interpreting a very narrow component of the 1933 and 34X as it relates to how orange futures are different than, than wine futures. And the gist of it is the Howey Fruit Company was where the Howey name comes from. And uh, wine futures have historically been deemed to not be securities, even though you go in with an expectation of profit. You give someone uh, money to go and build something that does not exist before. They're using your money to go build the wine. And uh, you don't have any control over the process. You can't go and tell the Rothschilds or Screaming Eagle to put in more Merlot. But you have to have four things that mean something's a security. If any of those are missing, it's not a security. And so the first three are expectation of profit, investment of money, which is why airdrops are not securities, because there's no investment of money no control over the common enterprise. And the last one is the trickiest one, which is if the price of something goes up or down, is it because of a change in the essential nature of the asset or because of the promises made by promoters or management? So in the case of wine, the company goes out of business, but Robert Parker likes the wine, the price goes up. As opposed to with the Howie Fruit Company, because oranges don't appreciate, they rot, they give you a dividend. You invested in the wine futures and they give you a dividend based on their yield of the crop. Well, there you're putting your money in with the expectation that it's going to be a good year and you're relying on those expectations. That's what made it a security. 
as opposed to you're buying a product that's delivered. You know, you know, you never get your oranges delivered. And so that's fairly simple, but it's hard to then go and say that that rule can then determine whether a utility token is a security or not, or whether a platform like Ethereum is a, is a security token. And so I think the, the Ripple case right now, where they're really hammering and saying, how ludicrous is it that we're using a 1940 Supreme Court case about orange groves to determine the whole future of the entire blockchain market? And so I'm hoping they win that. It's such an interesting perspective you have on this topic that comes up all the time. And, you know, I look at what Twitter just did and, and the value that has been created from something that was airdrop and the fact that we know that Twitter and Instagram are thinking of creating their own NFT marketplaces and getting seriously involved. Are you saying that past performance of other NFTs created by a platform that have gone up, it's not enough to sort of go beyond the Howey test and say that there's going to be innate potential of value increasing for future NFTs that are created? It's relevant. I mean, that's like saying, did the price of a wine bottle go up? Does it make it a security? And so there's, I don't think there's anybody who believes that if you're on Facebook and all of a sudden they say you can go and create your own FTs and you sell them, that there would be a security. It's a collectible. It's an artwork. I agree, but it's something, it's people make all sorts of arguments about NFTs being security. So I think it's important to have the conversation. They're wrong. There you go. I'm curious about the second part of the question, which was meant to be totally unrelated to the sort of regulatory um, question. And that is interviewed an artist and a scholar who's working with some museums to, to have participants at museums create NFTs around items that they feel a connection with. It's helping them mint them, but there's no purchases involved. And she said, you know, there's not necessarily even any attempt at kind of selling or exchanging them, but that an NFT can just sort of be a memento. I'm curious if you had any experience with that. NFT is a technology. And so an NFT has no inherent value other than what a buyer is willing to pay for it. You could say I'm one of one and a completely unknown artist and you may have a problem getting $5 for it. On the other hand, if you're Beeple and you market it pretty well and you say I'm one of one of these 5,000 photos and somebody paid $69 million for it, all of a sudden it's worth $69 million because they have proof that that's what somebody paid for it. Doesn't mean it's going to get resold higher. It's just that's that's the mark to market. And, uh, you know, I think that NFTs, you've got, you know, some pretty big brands that are sold on, you know, wax for $10, but they're one of a thousand or 10,000. And you've got still things that go for a hundred thousand dollars because somebody just really loves being, hey, I have a one of one of something super rare. And so I think we're still in the early days of this. I mean, you have to look back at the, uh, early days of websites when it cost a million dollars to make a website because there weren't that many people who knew how to do it. Now, now it's like you can get a website for $10. Well, normally we like to end by asking our listeners where they can uh, go to find out more about what you're doing. But if people Google your name, they'll find you all over the place and all, all sorts of conferences coming up. Maybe you can highlight some of the key ways people can track what you're doing and, and some of your plans. I know you have. Um, a big conference coming up here in Puerto Rico in December. And tell us a little bit more about that and how else uh, folks can stay in touch with what's going on in your world. Sure. Easiest way is uh, I'm at Michael Turpin uh, on Twitter. I'm also um, 
I'm pretty much my name on every platform. So if you see something with a hyphen or an exclamation bar or whatever, it's somebody pretending to be me, uh, particularly on Instagram where there's all sorts of people who like, you know, will go and contact my friends and then ask them to invest in some scam. And I, I don't direct message people so that I don't know and just like, hey, invest in this or that. I don't do that. So if you ever get somebody claiming to be me saying invest in some mining scam, it's not me. Okay. So that's put that usually on every single platform that I'm on because unfortunately there are people who go out there and all they need is one or two people to give them a bunch of money and you can't find where they are because they're, they're paying it in crypto. At any rate, so uh, CoinAgenda is what you're referring to. Uh, I started a uh, the first blockchain and Bitcoin investor conference in 2014 that was a spinoff from the first Bitcoin angel group that I started with David Johnston, who also now lives in Puerto Rico, in early 2013. And uh, we were finding that the BitAngels were, we did some physical events. We also did uh, just conference calls. And we'd find that we'd be like trying to gather and meet at other people's conferences. And so I thought, why don't I create my own conference? But I, I, I didn't want to call it Bit Angels because I wanted to be more than just people who are members of the investor group. So I called it Coin Agenda. And um, we've been going on since our first conference was in Las Vegas in 2014. And the price of Bitcoin was $298. And uh, so obviously it's, it's come a ways. This is our eighth year of doing Coin Agenda events in Las Vegas. And we actually have four events this year because of COVID. They're all going to be in the final four months of the year. We normally had been doing the Caribbean events in the spring. It wasn't uh, possible. So we're doing it, um, which I think will probably be a permanent change to having it early December, right after Art Basel. So Art Basel is a traditional art show in Miami. And the, the last couple of years, there've actually been some NFTs and some NFT side conferences. And so people can come to Miami, get their fill of uh, the art world NFTs, and then come down to Puerto Rico for Puerto Rico Blockchain Week, which includes uh, Coin Agenda Caribbean. That's December 6th through 8th. Um, early in the year, we've got Coin Agenda Global, which is October 25th to 27th in Las Vegas. Same time as uh, sort of the Las Vegas Blockchain Week activities, Money 2020. We also have uh, two international shows this year, Coin Agenda Europe, uh, which is right after the Monaco Yacht Show. Uh, it's uh, the 25th to 27th of uh, September in Monaco. And our first ever, we're not doing a Coin Agenda Asia this year because it's just too hard to go to any place in Asia without a quarantine, including Singapore, where we had our last one. It's a great, great place to hold a conference. So we're doing our first Coin Agenda Middle East and North Africa. And uh, Africa is booming right now. I just spoke recently at Africa Blockchain Week, which was virtual, but uh, it's in Dubai and it's part of Dubai Blockchain Week. It's uh, October 8th to 10th. So I'll be on the road a lot in uh, the last uh, three and a half months of the year. That's great. And uh, for those of you that come to Puerto Rico, if Ethan, Jeff and I are here, we'll definitely have a little push-up contest at the end of Coin Agenda, help everyone get fit from all the great events here and hospitality that I'm sure you'll offer your guests. Okay, we've reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs for today. Thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventures on this starship. So invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? Go to iTunes right now, rate us, say something cool, then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. Want to help co-create Edge of NFT with us? Got guests you want to see on the episode? Questions for the hosts or guests? An NFT you'd like us to review? Drop us a line at contact at edgeofnft.com or tweeted us at Edge of NFT to get in the mix. Lastly, be sure to tune in next week for guest Yatsu, chairman and founder of Animoca Brands. Thanks again for sharing this time with us today.